0: Hey true crime fanatics, I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, their all-new PowerPress deluxe sites, a no setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up for Media Hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site. Get that podcast you've been dreaming about started and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream. And now, on to today's show. Dreamers, this episode for me is going to be a real departure from the stories that I normally tell. You've probably guessed that I started this show because there were so many true crime stories that resonated with me at various points in my life. Having been born and raised here in California, many of them deeply affected me. Tragic stories like Samantha Runyon, Sharice Iverson, Polyclass, Class, and the deaths of some beloved celebrities, Phil Hartman, River Phoenix, Dana Plato, and yesterday I shared the story of Brandon Lee with you. There are so many more out there that I have yet to venture into with you, but you also may have noticed that I tend to shy away from certain types of cases, and it's usually because there is either too much information, or not enough information. For example, if I were to bring you the story of the Manson family, it would take me forever to get through everything I'd want to say about it. On the other hand, if I were to tell you the story of an older, unsolved case, there's likely not enough information out there for me to even bring you a half-hour show. Unless, of course, the case is something like the Black Dahlia, Then I think the show could go on for hours with all of the various theories and rumors surrounding the death of Elizabeth Short. But not every unsolved murder grows into the kind of epic, larger-than-life tale that her story has. And not every missing persons has the kind of attention paid to it like some stories out there have. Some of them even have their own podcasts like Maura Murray, or Jennifer Cassie, or Tara Grinstad. Even the fictitious Clara Pockets gets a lot of play. Many cases, murders and missing persons alike grow cold, and they stay cold for a very, very long time. They become forgotten as more and more time passes with no new information to be had family members and loved ones struggle to move on, adjusting their lives to somehow make the void of their missing or murdered loved one a part of their existence. Because let's face it, there's no filling that kind of void. They live their lives, they grow old, they pass away, perhaps never knowing who took the life of their loved one or who caused them to vanish from the face of the earth. They go on to their graves with broken hearts, never knowing the answers to the questions that dog them for the remainder of their lives. Investigators have to move on, too. Their jobs continue on. They can't possibly hang on one case forever, as work must be attended to. Other pressing matters arise. But that one case is always going to hang on them. And then they retire. Never knowing, hopefully, leaving the file in the hands of someone who will care about it as much as they did. And that cycle of that cold case starts over again. And the more time that passes, the more it seems that some murder cases may never be solved. Elizabeth Short, John Benet Ramsey, Bob Crane, Tupac and Biggie, and some missing persons cases. Even more mysterious and intriguing may go unsolved forever, too Maura Murray Susan Powell Natalie Holloway Or how about even a whole airplane full of people on Malaysian Airlines flight 370? These stories stay with us because of all of the attention paid to these mysteries in the news in the media and in pop culture They become embedded almost in our consciousness. Sometimes we put these stories in the backs of our minds, but then something will pop up in the news and grab our attention back to any one of these stories. But many stories don't. Those forgotten ones. I'm going to talk to you about one of those today. And it's a story that was brought to my attention by someone who I... Guests can be described as a brand new friend of mine and a great supporter of our little show here. Mike Morford of the Criminology Podcast. He also has a blog at truecrimeguys.com and he has a vested interest in some very cold, unsolved crimes. And you can tell from his show that he co-hosts with Mike Ferguson based on the subjects of their two seasons. First, the Zodiac Killer and currently the Golden State Killer. So, thank you, Mike, for not only suggesting this story to me, but also inspiring me to take a look at a story that is outside my general scope. I love a good story, and I love all of the details of the investigation and the court proceedings, and I like seeing families seeking justice get justice. Cold and unsolved cases don't have a lot of that but they all have a story to tell. And I will do the best that I can to bring you everything that I can in today's 39th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Cindy Lee Mellon. Cindy was born December 3rd, 1950. She had just turned 19 years old the month before the event I'm going to tell you about occurred. Before we get on with it, let's travel back in time to the time leading up to Cindy's story and the time surrounding it. Because this will mark the very first cold, unsolved case that I'm going to cover. So, I wanted us all to go back to that time and place. In 1969, Richard Nixon was sworn in as the 37th president. The Vietnam War was raging on with anti-war protests sweeping the United States. China carried out its first nuclear underground testing. The Soviet Union was busy launching space probes into orbit and sending cosmonauts out on spacewalks, while the United States launched its Mars probe and its Apollo program, and then would eventually go on to put the first man, Neil Armstrong, on the surface of the moon. The New York Jets upset the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III, while the New York Mets defeated the Baltimore Orioles in four games in the World Series. San Francisco giant Willie Mays became the first player since Babe Ruth to hit 600 career home runs. Elvis was making a comeback while the Beatles gave their last public performance in London, but also took that picture on Abbey Road, followed up with John and Yoko tying the knot. And meanwhile, in Florida, of course, Jim Morrison of the Doors is getting some indecent exposure charges. Judy Garland died of a drug overdose in London. Woodstock happened, and Walmart incorporated. The Boeing 747 made its maiden flight. The Godfather was published. The very first temporary artificial heart was implanted. The first person circumnavigated the globe without stopping and alone. The first American died in St. Louis of what would 15 years later be identified as HIV, the very first confirmed case in North America. The Zodiac killer is becoming a thing in California. Not to be outdone by the Zodiac, the Manson family were in full swing in their murder spree as well. Ted Kennedy and the Chappaquiddick incident happened. The UK stopped using the halfpenny. The Gap opened its first store in San Francisco, and Dave Thomas opened his first Wendy's in Ohio. The very first ATM popped up in Rockefeller Center. Scooby-Doo made its world premiere on CBS, and The Brady Bunch broadcast on ABC, and Sesame Street aired on the NET network in the United States. Color television was becoming a reality. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid hit the theaters. The predecessor of the Internet, the ARPANET link, is established. And that was just 1969. Then came January of 1970. The very first episode of the very first soap opera in the United States aired on ABC, All My Children. The Kansas City Chiefs defeated the Minnesota Vikings in Super Bowl Four. The Jackson Five were killing it on the Billboard charts with I Want You Back, and Black Sabbath debuted with what is regarded as the very first heavy metal record. And then, it was just about this time that our story today was about to take place. Ventura County is an area that lies just north of the Los Angeles Metropolitan Area, and as you pass through it headed north, you will find yourself just about in the southernmost part of what is considered the central coast of California, in it, of course, you will find his county seat, the city of Ventura. But that isn't actually its full given name. Its official name is San Buenaventura, named after its Spanish mission, founded in 1782 by Junipero Serra, the first leader of the Franciscans in California. It would be his ninth and final mission that he established. I'm not sure how many of you listening are familiar with the 21 Spanish missions of the Catholic Church in California, but if you would like to hear more about their establishments, I would be more than happy to put together a bonus episode for you guys. So, the city of Buenaventura gained its name from the mission, and then it was shortened to just Ventura. And in the city of Ventura, there was the largest shopping center in the county, covering an area of nearly 1,000,000 square feet or 93,000 square meters. The Pacific View Mall, fittingly named as such because of its nearby view of the beautiful Pacific Ocean at Pierpont Bay. However, when it was first being built in 1962, it was an open-air shopping mall, named, once again after its local Spanish mission, the Buenaventura Center and its very first store there was the Broadway, which opened in 1963. Do any of you listening remember the Broadway? I do. At my local mall, it's now a Macy's where the Broadway once stood. So this is precisely the place where Cindy was working, the Broadway, one of the anchor stores at the Buenaventura Shopping Center. And on the night of Tuesday, January twentieth, 1970, she was a part of the closing crew. I'm not sure what time the mall closed on an average weeknight like that back then. I'm assuming it must have been about 9 p.m. That's the time the malls have closed for as long as I can remember. And according to two people who work with Cindy, the last time they saw her was around 10.30 in the parking lot. And I will come back to that in a moment. I wanted to try to take us back to that night. How many of you have ever worked at a mall? I did for about four years or so. I didn't work at one of the big anchor department stores or anything like that. I worked at a small kitchen and houseware store called Lecter's Housewares. Some of you may remember it. I think they reached their peak during the late 80s and early 90s. They slowly went under due to the rise of stores like Walmart coming into town. When I worked there, the stores all closed at 9pm, Monday through Friday, 8 p.m. on Saturday, and 7 p.m. on Sundays. After the store closed, the person in charge would close out the registers for the day, count out the drawers, and get the deposit ready for the next day to be sent to the bank. The other employees would get the store back in order, straighten up the shelves and displays, mop, vacuum, take out the trash, stuff like that. In a small store like the one I worked in, This would take maybe about an hour. So on the average weeknight, we'd be headed out around 10 p.m. We'd all leave the store and walk to our cars together. But at a big store like the Broadway, and if you aren't familiar with the Broadway, remember that I mentioned my local Macy's used to be a Broadway. So that can kind of give you an idea of what the layout and the size of the store is like. So it is likely to take more time to get the store closed down for the evening, get the registers counted down, and get the store back in order and clean for the next business day. And I could easily see that taking employees much past 10 p.m. So this would bring us back to the parking lot of the shopping center at 10.30 that evening. Two other employees at the Broadway reported that they spotted Cindy standing beside her vehicle, still parked where she had when she arrived earlier in the day for work. Their husbands had picked them up and they drove past Cindy next to her car. It had a flat tire, and she appeared to be looking on as someone was helping her change the tire. The co-workers of Cindy did not really recognize this man. To them, he appeared to be slim in build and described him as tall, guessing his age to be between 35 and 40 years old. When they saw him, he was hoisting Cindy's car with the jack. Not really thinking much of it in the moment, they carried on and headed over to a nearby restaurant or a cafe. I'm not sure which, but it will still open at that hour. To grab a cup of coffee with their husbands before parting ways and heading home. When the two co-workers and their husbands drove back by again after having that cup of coffee, They happened by Cindy's car, but this time she was nowhere around the vehicle and neither was the tall slender man who was helping her change her flat. Her co-workers jumped to the conclusion that for some reason the tire was unable to be changed or something like that. So either that was Cindy's dad who had been helping her or her dad must have been contacted and came to pick her up and decided to deal with the flat the next day. To me, this would seem to be an odd conclusion to jump to. Just leaving the car there, partially worked on, with everything left out, everything left behind, seemingly in the middle of the tire change. Well, at least I think it's odd. This was 48 years ago. Times were different and thinking was different. This was the dawn of a new decade. The 60s had been a juxtaposition of tragedies and social change. And as the 70s wore on, when it came to violent crime, there was a rise of this particular breed of criminal, the serial killer. The story I'm telling you took place right at the start of the 70s. So, I don't know how aware people were of the potential for danger out there. To us... Looking at this flat tire scenario in the empty parking lot of a shopping center at 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night, alarm bells and red flags would be all over the place. But not so much for Cindy or her co-workers. Their minds just didn't go there. And Not too long ago, I had a flat tire, but it was in the morning and I was parked someplace safe. My daughter was with me, so I figured then would be as good a time as any to teach her how to change a flat tire, like my dad did for me. He actually insisted that I prove to him that I could do it before he'd let me drive, so I kind of had to learn. But naturally, I was struggling with it, and I'm not sure why. I think my jack wasn't working properly, and I was on the verge of calling roadside assistance, but then a stranger came by and offered help. And he used his jack and he was able to help finish changing the tire. And I live to tell about it, right? Well, my point is, when you're in that place and when you just want to get that stupid tire on and you want to get on with your day, or in Cindy's case, get on with your night, I could see her very eagerly accepting the assistance of a stranger, not thinking that something could go terribly wrong. You just want to get that tire on your car. I get it, I've been there. Ideally, your flat tire story ends like mine did. Thank the stranger and get on with their lives, but this was not the case for Cindy. The following morning, Cindy's dad became alarmed when he woke up before dawn and saw that she wasn't home. This wasn't like her. He looked outside for her car and he didn't see it. Worried, he quickly headed over to the Buena Ventura shopping center to see if she or her car were still there. He found the car all right, but no sign of Cindy. Even more concerning was the way in which he found the car. It was still hoisted up on that jack. The flat tire had not even been removed yet, and the spare was set aside nearby. This was a bad sign. As this meant, something abruptly stopped Cindy's flat tire from being changed. This having occurred in a very short window of time, between approximately 10.30 and 11.00 p.m., the time when her co-workers last saw Cindy standing outside by her car with the unknown man who was in the process of jacking up the car, and the time that they passed by again returning to their vehicles from having had that cup of coffee. Somewhere in those 30 short minutes, Cindy and the unknown man were gone. Cindy's father immediately called police to report his daughter missing. Investigators made their way to the parking lot of the Buenaventura shopping center where Cindy's abandoned car sat, partially jacked up. The doors of the car, the trunk and the glove compartment were left open. In speaking with her family and her co-workers, investigators did not have the inclination that Cindy had left on her own. She just wasn't that type. She was a dedicated college student. She got along well with her family, never having any real serious problems at home. She dated casually, but was not in any serious relationship at the time. She had never run away or inexplicably left home for any amounts of time. She enjoyed her part-time job working at the Broadway and She just started college. And besides, why and how would she run off without her car? She obviously was interested in getting that flat tire fixed so she could get into her car and drive. And the fact that the task of changing the spare was incomplete was very concerning. Investigators were able to obtain an unfortunately ambiguous description of the man assisting Cindy with her flat tire, tall, thin, thirty five to forty. That hardly narrows down the persons of interest pool. Sounds like the average guy. Whoever he was, police wanted to talk to him. That is, if they could find him. And the chances of that were slim. Cindy's co-workers couldn't have known that they were going to need to recall this man the following day when their friend suddenly was nowhere to be found. One can only imagine how sad and frustrating that must have been for them and for everyone that this person was right there. And now, that person was nowhere. As was Cindy. Cindy's dad later on, when he had a chance to take another look at her car, once he had a chance to collect himself from the understandable shock and fear of having discovered his daughter had gone missing, he took a closer look at the tire and something jumped out at him immediately. One look and he knew. This was not a flat that occurred by happenstance. This tire was slashed, deliberately flattened by someone with a sharp object on the side of the tire. Now I'm sorry, but this bothers me a lot. Why is it that Cindy's dad was the one who found this crucial piece of evidence? Why was it not the investigators at the scene the ones who made this critical discovery? Now, I am by no means a tire expert, but I certainly have had my fair share of flat tires. And if you're anything like me, once you've changed your flat tire, you kind of sort of give it a cursory once over to see if you can spot what may have caused your tire to go flat, right? I know that there are some of you out there, and I'm guilty of this too, have let our tires get too bald and then they just wear out and then they begin to lose tire pressure, which forces us to finally get those new tires we've been procrastinating about getting. Aside from that, we've all found that nail or that screw embedded in our tires, or perhaps we've hit or run over something that caused our tire to go flat. My point is, we know what the things that cause our flats to look like. That being said, if for some weird reason we found our tire or tires to be slashed, It would be obvious immediately, wouldn't it? A large cut into the side of the tire would stand out to us right away, and we would know that that cut was done by someone on purpose. So, for the investigators not to have been the ones to find this piece of evidence at the scene, to me is unacceptable, and I would definitely begin to worry about the state of my daughter's case if investigators were overlooking things that should practically be slapping them in the face. Cindy's dad told reporters that he could see that the tire was deliberately punctured with most likely a knife. He said that he was able to observe a large slit on the side of the tire. He also went on to say that whenever Cindy had car trouble, that she would almost always call him for help, stating that his daughter did not know how to use a jack, nor did she know how to change a flat tire. Okay, so, what does all of this mean? Upon leaving work that night, it seems that she may have arrived at her car ahead of her co-workers. To me, this means that they all didn't leave at exactly the same time. Or perhaps Cindy left slightly ahead of the others because her share of the work was done and she was able to clock out and go home ahead of everyone else. But not that much ahead. Because by the time her two co-workers passed by, And saw her standing there watching the unknown man jack up her car. Enough time had passed for Cindy to have noticed her car to have had a flat, but it didn't get much further than that when she was approached by someone who offered to help and began doing so by getting the implements out of the car to begin the work on changing the tire the jack, the tire iron, the spare. So, by the time her co-workers passed by at 10.30 p.m., the man had been in the process of jacking up the car already. This lends to the idea that this man was someplace close by, looking on when Cindy discovered that she'd had that flat tire, and quickly approached her with an offer to help. And I don't think we would be remiss in speculating that this would probably be the same man who flattened the tire in the first place as according to Cindy's dad, she would have called him. But it's not like she had a cell phone like she would have had if this had happened today, right? This was 1970. She would have either had to have gone to a nearby payphone, or she would have had to go back into the Broadway if that was even an option, as the person in charge or the supervisor or the manager would have already locked the doors and armed the alarms by then, right? and getting back in may not have been an option. Or Cindy would have gone to perhaps the nearby restaurant or cafe with her co-workers to call her dad to come and help her. But she did none of that. She accepted the man's help, not noticing or realizing that her tire had been slashed on purpose, not seeing that she was actually being set up. The flat tire was all a ruse, and... She never saw it coming. I told you all about the many things that were going on in the world, in politics and news and sports, music, television, and pop culture. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, that an unassuming 19-year-old student and part-time salesperson at the mall vanished from the parking lot of where she worked, never to be seen again. Cindy's name and picture made it into the local papers. You can see images of those news clippings online, but before long, her name and her photo and her story fell to the wayside. But not for Cindy's family. And unless we've lived through something as painful as having a missing loved one, then we cannot possibly understand the pain and frustration of never knowing what happened can cause. It never goes away. That emptiness looms over the family for the remainder of time, especially in a case like Cindy's. The days turned into weeks, weeks into months, months into years, and years into decades. As of the airing of this episode, it has been 48 years Two months and 13 days since that night Cindy all but vanished off the face of the earth. That's 17,604 days. If she were alive today, she would be 67 years old. She could have been a grandmother by now. And so, the question lingers. What happened to Cindy? Cindy. As the years have gone by, some theories have been floated as to who may have had a hand in Cindy's disappearance, particularly some notable serial killers, namely Mack Ray Edwards, Rodney Alcala, and the Zodiac Killer. Let's quickly take a look at each of these suspects and see how they line up. Starting with convicted serial killer Mack Ray Edwards, Born in Arkansas, he moved to Los Angeles in 1941. He obtained work as a heavy equipment operator for Caltrans, the department that works on the roads and freeways in California, a job which apparently was useful in helping Edwards dispose of his victims. He murdered three children between the years of 1953 and 1956. Eight-year-old Stella Darlene Nolan of Compton, California, she disappeared on June 20, 1953. He was convicted of her murder. Edwards confessed to killing 15-year-old Donald Lee Baker and 12-year-old Brenda Joe Howell from Azusa, California. They disappeared together on August 6, 1956, and Brenda Joe was the sister of Edwards' wife. He was never charged with their murders because their bodies were never recovered. Then Edwards seemed to have taken a hiatus from killing for almost 12 years. 16-year-old Gary Roche of Granada Hills, California was found shot to death November 26, 1968. Edwards was convicted of his murder as well. 15-year-old Roger Dale Madison of Selmar, California disappeared on December 16, 1968. Edwards was also never charged with his murder because He was never recovered either. And lastly, 13-year-old Donald Allen Todd of Pacoima, California, disappeared on May 16, 1969. Edwards was convicted of his murder as well. One of his victims was found underneath the Santa Ana Freeway, and he is said to have disposed of another one of his victims underneath the Ventura Freeway. So... He definitely used his work as a heavy equipment operator to try and cover up his crimes. However, in March of 1970, he, along with the teenager who became his accomplice, abducted three girls right out of their own home in Silmar, California. The girls managed to escape and Edwards subsequently surrendered and provided police a full confession that implicated him in the murders of those six children. It is thought that Edwards may have been linked to at least 18 more disappearances and murders, but those are just some jailhouse claims he is said to have made. He granted an interview with the Los Angeles Times after his conviction for the three killings, and he recanted his claims, going back to his original six victims. Investigators did have reason to believe that he was quite possibly still killing during that 12-year hiatus, but He never specifically implicated himself in any other cases, although he remains a person of interest in several unsolved cases during the time that he was actively killing in Southern California. So how well does Edwards fit as a potential suspect for the disappearance of Cindy? Well, geographically speaking, he kind of fits. His last kidnapping of those three girls is approximately 65 miles or... 104 kilometers from where Cindy disappeared from. And as you can see from the variety of locations all over Southern California from which his victims were abducted or killed, getting around wasn't a problem for him. So yes, he was indeed in the area, but Cindy was a little bit older than the victims he typically targeted. And it seemed that Edwards also targeted young male victims although he didn't seem opposed to attacking young female victims if the opportunity presented itself. He was in the right place, but I'm not convinced that she was a victim of his, and he never confessed to it. Edwards was convicted of three murders and sentenced to death. He was incarcerated on death row at San Quentin Prison, but on October thirtieth, 1971, after two previous failed attempts at doing so, Edwards hanged himself with his TV cord. Whatever secrets he had died with him. Then there was serial killer Rodney Alcala. You may have heard of him being referred to as the dating game killer due to the fact that he made an appearance on the show during the time he was in the midst of committing his crimes. He has been convicted of murders in California and New York. In 2010, he was sentenced to death in California for five murders committed between 1977 and 1979. In 2013, he pleaded guilty to two more murders in New York, one in 1971 and one in 1977, and received 25 years to life for those killings. However, his actual number of victims remains unknown. Akala's crimes are thought to have begun in 1968. A witness spotted him luring an eight-year-old girl named Tali Shapiro into his apartment in Hollywood, California, and immediately contacted police. The girl was found alive, but she had been sexually assaulted and beaten with a metal bar. Alcala managed to flee the scene before police were able to apprehend him, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. In order to evade capture, Alcala fled California going just about as far as you could within the continental United States, all the way to New York, where he enrolled himself in New York University School of Film under the alias John Berger. In 1971, Alcala managed to gain employment as a counselor at a children's art camp in New Hampshire, using a slightly different spelling of his alias. Berger instead of Berger, B-U-R-G-E-R instead of B-E-R-G-E-R, And in June of 1971, a 23-year-old TWA flight attendant, Cornelia Crilly, was discovered in her Manhattan apartment, sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Her murder remained cold until Alcala was tied to it in 2011 through DNA. In early 1971, Alcala landed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitive list. It wasn't too long before a couple of observant kids at the camp saw the FBI's poster pinned up in the office of the camp. Can you imagine being at camp and seeing your counselor on an FBI Most Wanted poster? Crazy. So, those kids alerted someone in charge. They were like, um, you know, this guy on the FBI poster kinda looks like Camp Counselor John over there. Oh my goodness. Well, fortunately, Alcala was promptly arrested and extradited back to California. But his victim, Tolly, had moved with her entire family to Mexico, and her parents would not consent for her to come back to California to testify against Alcala at his trial. Without her testimony, prosecutors knew that they would not be able to convict him of rape and attempted murder, so they had to offer him a plea bargain, which he accepted. Alcala pleaded guilty to assault, and in 1974, after only serving 17 months, he was paroled under a program called indeterminate sentencing, which allowed for offenders to be released by the parole board if they were able to demonstrate that they had shown signs of having been rehabilitated. But only after having been on parole for two months, Alcala reoffended, assaulting a 13-year-old girl. But he was subsequently released again via the indeterminate sentencing program after serving only two more years. In 1977, for some reason... Alcala was inexplicably granted permission to travel to New York by his parole officer. While there, he murdered Ellen Jane Hover, who happened to be the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. In 1978, he was actually interviewed by investigators on the case of the Hillside Strangler, as he was on their radar as a repeat sexual offender, but he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. It was also during this time that Alcala had used the ruse of being a professional photographer in order to convince hundreds of young women and men to pose for pictures for him. He would eventually come to have in his possession more than 1,000 pictures of women and teenage girls and boys, usually in provocative, sexually explicit poses. Many of those depicted in the photographs remain unidentified, and it's been speculated that some of them may be rape- possibly murder victims of Alcala. As a matter of fact, Alcala has been most recently charged with the murder of a woman identified in one of his pictures way back in 1977. His appearance on The Dating Game took place in 1978. So, what does this mean in terms of the possibility of him being involved in Cindy's disappearance? Geographically, it kind of fits, some of his killings did take place in the Southern California area. However, at the time that Cindy went missing, Alcala purportedly absconded to New York to avoid arrest for the assault on Tali. It's possible that he made his way back to Southern California during the time that he was on the run, and he wasn't on the FBI's most wanted list yet. And we've known criminals to be on the LAM, but for some reason return to the areas where they've committed their crimes so it's not unheard of. But there's no evidence that indicates that he ever did that, and he seemed to be gainfully employed on the East Coast at the time. Then there's a matter of those more than 1,000 pictures found in his possession. There has been some speculation that Cindy is the subject of some of those photos, but there is no definitive proof that she is, nor has she positively been identified in any of them. In addition to that, If it were Alcala there that night helping her change her tire, would she have suddenly abandoned the task and up and left to go participate in an impromptu photo shoot with Alcala, leaving her car there on the jack, doors and trunk open? Probably not. Cindy seems to fit Alcala's victim profile, but the way in which she disappeared from a public parking lot does not seem to fit his modus operandi. Alcala strikes me as the type who likes to lure his victims into his apartment or a place where he had privacy under the guise of using them as models for him, a supposed professional photographer. He didn't seem to force his victims to go with him or incapacitate them prior to getting them into his apartment. The slashing of the tire and the lying in wait doesn't seem to have been Alcala's thing, so that, coupled with the fact that he was more likely than not 3,000 miles away living and working on the East Coast, I don't think Rodney Alcala is our guy. Then there's a Zodiac killer. Let's take a quick look at his crimes and see how this still unknown serial killer might possibly have had a hand in Cindy's disappearance. He was an active serial killer in California during the time Cindy vanished, but other than that, Nothing about the Zodiac killer's crime and suspected crimes seems to fit with Cindy's case. On the surface, the Zodiac killer did approach his victims often when they were in their vehicles, but it does not appear that he had a hand in causing their vehicles to become disabled or anything. He often crept up on couples in their cars and shot them. Sometimes he'd stab his victims. But abduction wasn't really his thing. And for the most part, the Zodiac is mostly known to have operated in the northern part of California. The crimes he may have been connected to in Southern California have not definitively been linked to him. So, of the serial killers, I do find the Zodiac to be the least likely of all. When considering the circumstances of Cindy's disappearance, it's worth noting that there were other young women in the Southern California area who disappeared after they'd experienced some sort of car trouble, finding themselves stranded along the highway, namely Rose Tashman, Mona Galagos, and Robin Graham, all disappeared, all broke down on the freeway. But here's the thing about that. Those three missing women appeared to have been victims of opportunity. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I told a similar story in episode 19, the story of Denise Huber. She was abducted in Costa Mesa in 1991 after a car had a flat tire on the freeway. Victim of opportunity. For Cindy, this did not appear to be the case. Her abduction seemed to be planned. Somebody who was familiar with who she was, where she worked, where she parked, what time she'd be there what time she was off, and where to find her car. So to me, this doesn't even sound completely like a stranger abduction either. It's possible, but it feels more like someone who knew her, at least on a casual basis. Maybe someone who also worked at the mall, or someplace nearby where Cindy may have frequented. Maybe someplace she would have taken her lunch break or where she'd have a coffee. Maybe it was someone who was a mall customer, perhaps even a regular at the Broadway. Maybe someone who had taken a liking to Cindy, unbeknownst to her. Cindy's co workers said that they did not know who the man was. So, if it was someone who worked at the mall or frequented the Broadway as a customer, would it have been more likely that they recognized him? Or maybe they just weren't paying that close attention when they saw him hunched over jacking up Cindy's car. It was late. I don't know how well lit the place was. And I also wonder how trusting Cindy was of people in general. Would she have accepted the help of a stranger at that hour of the evening? If it was out of character for her to do so, then perhaps she knew of or was familiar with this man. I don't know what direction investigators were interested in going at at the time, so I don't know how much they considered anyone and everyone who may have been working in or around the Buenaventura Center. If they were treating this as a stranger abduction or an acquaintance abduction, it might have made a big difference in the case depending on how they were looking at this. So, this brings me to the prime suspect in Cindy's disappearance, a man named Edward Nelson Cole II. He is named after his father, and he named his son after himself. I am going to tell you a little bit about this man, as there is very little known. However, the minimal amount of information had on Cole it does make for a compelling argument that he may very well be responsible for Cindy's disappearance. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that Cindy's case was brought to me by Mike Morford, you know, from the Criminology podcast. He is also an avid true crime blogger and runs a couple of sites dedicated to cold cases and the Zodiac Killer. It is his belief that Cole is the strongest suspect in Cindy's disappearance, as he was able to gain some inside information on the investigation. I will include the links to his websites in the show notes, so you can click around there and see for yourselves. So, Edward Nelson Cole II. When Cindy disappeared, Cole was purportedly working in Southern California, possibly with his brother, in some capacity that involved laying underground pipes. And it is somewhere in the seemingly infinite maze of subterranean pipelines that Cole could have possibly disposed of Cindy somewhere never to be found. Cole was born November sixteenth, 1935, which would make him thirty-four years old at the time Cindy disappeared. so he fits the age range given by the witnesses in the parking lot that night. There are no known photographs of Cole. So, if he matches the description of a tall and slim man, that remains unknown. However, I do have a little information about his son, which I will talk about in a little bit, and he is listed as being six foot one or six foot two. so, who knows also, according to the inside information Mike was able to obtain, investigators indicated that at some point during the course of the investigation into Cindy's case, they, quote, lost track, unquote, of coal. But Mike himself was able to track him down in Polk, Florida, and he's since passed away on February 5th, 2005. So this guy laid pipe in Southern California at the time Cindy disappeared. That doesn't automatically a killer make, right? Well, there's more about this guy and it's shady. You see, at some point in his life, Edward Nelson Cole II stole the identity of another man named Sam Roper. Sam Roper was a man from Charleston, South Carolina, and he died May 19, 1995. It's suspicious, right? To steal the identity of another person, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because why do we steal people's identities? Nowadays it's to access people's personal information and commit crimes electronically or online. But back then I'd say people stole identities for much of the same reasons minus the high techiness of it all. But it's likely done to become someone else because your name has been besmirched oftentimes by one's own actions or criminal behavior. But there's more to this identity thievery than meets the eye. You see, Edward Nelson Cole II and Sam Roper are actually birthday twins. That's right. These two men were born on the exact same day of the exact same month of the exact same year. Coincidence? I think not. But I would like to ask the same questions Mike asked in his blog. How is it that Edward Cole happened to come upon this individual with the same exact birth date as him, and then go on to steal his identity. How did this come to happen, and how did the birth date connection get made? According to some people Mike spoke to who knew Cole, the general sentiment is that he was clearly a man who was not very likable and had some very troubling issues going on in his life. He had children, but he was largely disconnected from them, some of them describing him as a deadbeat dad. This could be a motive to want to change your identity, right? Being a deadbeat dad can mean a number of things. Of course, our first inclination is to think he is not offering up financial support. But he could also generally be absent from the lives of his children, disconnected emotionally as well as financially. And he apparently had a criminal record. However, the details of his crimes are unclear. With all of those things swirling around in his background, and the fact that he's stolen somebody's ID, is it that much of a jump to think of him as a prime suspect in Cindy's disappearance? I don't think it is at all. Most killers spend a number of years escalating their crimes, so I wouldn't put it past him by the time he was 34 years old, having a criminal background, and no solid ties to his family, to making the leap to kidnapping, assault, and murder. It is a big leap, but... It happens. And then it would also be worth taking into consideration the fact that he was working along with his brother, who also ended up passing away in Polk, Florida. It would be a guess on my part, but this Edward Nelson Cole person of interest strikes me as a man who was never able to sustain a stable living on his own at any point in his life. Considering his criminal background, the stealing of Sam Roper's identity, being that deadbeat dad then sort of following his brother across the country from Florida to California, then back to Florida again. These things does not a killer make, but the circumstances certainly have him sitting high upon the list of potential suspects. And of all of the ones I've mentioned, he appears to be the likeliest of them all. And one last thing about Edward Nelson Cole II before we wrap this up. We need to talk about the third Edward Nelson Cole. You've heard the saying that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Well, if we were to assume the second is a criminal, and possibly a kidnapper, rapist, and killer, then the third apparently didn't fall far from the tree. A quick Google search of Florida's sex offender registry, and you will find Cole III is indeed a registrant. In 2004, Cole III was convicted in New York of attempted third-degree rape and third degree attempted criminal sex act with a minor. Now, there may not be any connection between the crimes of Cole the 3rd and Cole the 2nd. And it's never really been confirmed that Cole the 2nd ever had anything to do with Cindy's disappearance. But I find it an intriguing footnote to the story nonetheless. And as for New York, what's the connection there? Well, his grandfather Cole I lived in New York for most, if not all, of his life. So, I would imagine he continued to have family in the area, therefore ending up finding himself in some serious trouble there, serious enough to land him on the sex offender registry for life. As Cindy's case stands now, it remains unsolved, and it's likely forever going to stay that way. When I was reading through Mike's blog... And looking at pictures of Cindy, I began having a really sad and sinking feeling about her. When talking about the late 60s and early 70s at the beginning of the story, I felt like I was spinning through some kind of time warp. All of the things that were going on at that time, how there was a sense of conflict, but yet a desire for peace, despite a war raging in Vietnam. We were still pressing forward as a country, and I began thinking of how exciting of a time it might have been for Cindy, and how all of that was taken away from her and from her family. I wanted to go back to that night and picture myself watching those last moments of Cindy's existence. I looked at photos of the Broadway at the Buenaventura Center, and it looks like there's only one picture of it, and you can kind of see the parking lot that place where someone caused her to be gone forever it could have been a pretty cold night that night it was january it was 10:30 who could have possibly had a hand in this i do like that suspect edward cole the second he seems to fit but there's so little information and it's likely too late to ever be able to find out any more about him. It's kind of driving me crazy to think about who it was lurking in that parking lot. I can't help but think it was someone who'd known or had interacted with Cindy in some capacity. And what if it was Cole? Was he perhaps working close to the Buenaventura shopping center during that period of time? He could have been involved in a long-term construction job nearby and was there for an extended period of time, operating equipment, laying pipe in the vicinity of where she worked. Did he happen to spot her near the mall? Maybe they had a lunch break at the same time and they happened to cross paths and he became taken with the lovely young salesperson. Maybe she was wearing a name tag that had the name of the store inscribed on it. And that's how he came to learn where she'd work. Then perhaps he began watching her. Maybe he attempted to talk to her and she rebuffed him. He would have been about 15 years older than her, and maybe she just wasn't interested. Or maybe he never talked to her at all, thinking she'd never consider giving him the time of day. So he decided to stalk her? Because to me, this feels like it was planned, and Cindy was targeted specifically. Someone knowing her work schedule, knowing when she'd be getting off, and waited for her. This someone knew her car and then came prepared to flatten the tire and then observed from afar until Cindy left work, until she arrived at her vehicle and then watched her notice her flat tire. And before she had the chance to alert her coworkers or go look for her phone to call her dad for help, this unknown person looking like he just happened to notice that she was in a bind and kindly offered to help, and Cindy unwittingly accepted. And he kept up the ruse of changing the tire until Cindy's co-workers passed by, and when the coast was clear, he made his move and did whatever it was he did to make Cindy vanish. He might have had his own vehicle parked nearby and took her away, leaving her car, still on its jack, behind. And maybe this was in very close proximity to the construction site where he may have been working and managed to conceal Cindy there under cover of a dark and cold January night, hiding her so well that to this day not a trace of her has ever been uncovered. Was it Edward Cole II? Maybe. But if it was, he took that secret with him to the grave. And Cindy's parents, they went to their graves without ever knowing what became of their child. As for Cindy's story, I'm hoping, and maybe some of you are hoping as well, that someday, somebody is going to happen upon something odd or out of place. Maybe a place where there might be some new construction, maybe a new housing development or business district that someone will happen upon a part of Cindy will finally uncover the mystery of what became of her. As Mike said, her story will continue to live on thanks to the wonders of the internet and she will live on here with us at California Dreaming. That brings our 39th episode to a close. Don't forget to touch base with me on the discussion page on Facebook, on Twitter at CaliforniaPod, and on Instagram at California CaliforniaDreamingPod where I will be posting pictures related to Cindy's story, as well as links to the pages I've mentioned throughout. I owe Mike Morford a big thank you for bringing this case to me, and I'm so honored to have this opportunity to tell it to everyone, and I hope with all of my heart that you and everyone listening were as moved as I was as telling it. I know how much her story, and so many other intriguing unsolved stories, means to Mike. Your dedication and your compassion for the victims is absolutely inspiring, and I've done everything possible to tell Cindy's story the best way that I could, and I hope I'm doing her and you justice. Thank you again for challenging me to try something different with this show. As you know, California Dreaming is proudly a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network of Podcasts. We have joined forces with an amazing group of shows and hosts to bring you a variety of shows across many different genres, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, For one owned Film Roast, and we actually have two new additions to our podcast family. One I told you about last week, Vox Arcana, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, and the Orbital Jigsaw Podiums. You know I've been asking you to check out the Facebook page. Well, now it's going to be a podcast too. The founder and CEO of Orbital Digsaw, Nick Howell, is bringing a show specifically to podcasters and aspiring podcasters with interviews with some of the top vendors and developers in podcasting, inside scoops, and behind-the-scenes information, why things happen the way that they happen, and some tips on how to best make your show a success. Listen to the introductory episode now especially if you are a host or thinking about becoming one at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on the link on the homepage. And before we go, I have a couple of show promos to play for you. Two really great shows that I think you might enjoy. Take a listen. Hey, hey, hey. Hi everybody, my name's Lisa. And my name is Matt. And we are the hosts of Eye for an Eye podcast. And we are trying to determine whether or not the punishment fits the crime. Wasn't Eye for an Eye Matt? Does the punishment make sense? Was it too lenient? Too harsh? Too rough? Not enough? We're not sure, but we're about to figure it out. And do you think that we have the opportunity to determine now what happened after the fact? Who knows? Take a listen to our podcast, Eye for Eye podcast. We'd love to hear from you. The Cult of Domesticity is a weekly podcast created by two best friends who share a love of history, true crime, literature, somewhat current events, and everything else in between. Join us every Thursday as we cover things that interest us and hopefully you too. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and most other podcast listening apps. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and we cannot wait to hear from you. Bye! Bye! And as always, dreamers, thank you for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams.